Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. And we'll begin with a, a short prayer as is customary. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hands and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Um, John, I've picked up a habit of kind of throwing things random at you that are unscripted, even though the whole thing is unscripted. We're deviating. But the question is, who do we think we are recording a podcast, John? Ah. This is what I've I had to wrap my mind around. Yeah. Is who, who, who do well, yeah, I? Yeah, like why do yeah. this? Yeah, why exactly. do this? What's your view? So, uh, we've—I mean, we have talked about this once or twice before. <laughs> um, but one mm-hmm. thing that I that I did pick up from our conversations from before was that this isn't necessarily like us coming to the table with like this is factual information that we should all know. It's more of like a conversation that helps us not only talk to one another, but talk to people who might be interested in this topic. Mm -hmm. If you just think of this as like, um, almost like exploratory content, we not, might not be engaging vocally with other people, but people that listen to this might be able to participate merely by listening Mm -hmm. to the conversations that we're having. And if they can bring some sort of something to add to their, uh, Knowledge of communication or especially of their faith, then it is something that we can can add to. That's why I ask, just to put that out there, you know, um, all it is is a conversation. And if you're interested in the same thing we are, which is how communication and theology come together, um, then listen. If you don't, don't. (laughs) (laughs) Or do. But being being kind of the one-person communication department at my institution, it's just good to have someone to talk to about these things because it's an endless thing to explore, how theology and communication, um, yeah, just cross-pollinate. And and the the knot is always on Christian theology. That's where the the ground is. That's how we know what we know for sure. And then there's some that's speculative then as we maybe ask questions that haven't always been asked. Yeah, or look so, through a lens that we might not have thought to mm-hmm, look through before. Yeah. So, so what's on our, on our plate today? Yeah, so we're kind of picking up. A, yeah, we're picking up on a conversation we had a while ago about um, narrative. So we're kind of continuing that today with a little bit of a a different approach to the topic. But let's kind of maybe we could just go through what we talked about before, just off the top of our our heads. What we sure. Well, what we examined. I think we started off with the story of Elisha at Dothan. Mm-hmm. And so that's a story that's been very memorable to me. And on first glance, especially um, as I was analyzing it before our, our conversation before, it was not immediately clear why this was so gripping and engaging. It wasn't clear why I like hung on to that, that story and what, like what it meant. Like there's something going on here that kind of entangles you. Mm-hmm. And then that's true for a lot of stories in scripture, especially in the old Testament for me. So 
we kind of used that as a segue to kind of unpack why looking at the Old Testament through a narrative lens can be of additive value to our understanding of scripture and doctrine as a whole. Hmm. It's funny because before we started to record, we were we were uh, scratching our heads or exploring our memories for New Testament stories too that kind of do that to yeah. us. And now as you talk, one came to me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, well, let's yeah. go. As far as a story that this story moves me and I, I haven't fully unpacked why it's the, it's the dying question of John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And the answer of Christ is go tell John the blind can see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the, the sick are better and the dead rise. Go tell John that. You know, and this uh, might be a segue actually to the next episode that we are scheming on, which is indirect communication, yeah. just because Christ could have been way more direct with John <laughs> than to, to say essentially, John, you know, you know the prophet Isaiah, you know, you put it together, John, yeah. you know, you've seen. So anyway. Um, answering a yes or no question with that. <laughs> with that. What is this? Yeah. And, um, so yeah, to, re- to kind of recap a little bit, I like that idea. So we took the story of Elisha at Dothan, and what I wanted to do was connect it to what we can call the the grand meta-narrative of the whole entire Bible, what we said. We're very careful to say this yeah. is the one narrative you can trust because it's revealed by God who knows all and sees all. This is the story in which you can reliably find yourself in a way none other. And so what was interesting to me was the exploring together how that, that biblical narrative garden to garden with Christ in the center just really does have every quality communication scholars have looked for in trying to understand why stories are persuasive. I mean, it's coherent, incredibly so, how the, how it hangs together. Though you you need the spirit to see that, but it's it's coherent, hangs together. It's, That's how he works. Yeah, exactly. So it has those qualities of faithfulness, coherence, and, and how good reasons are embedded from beginning to end. And last time we put this in terms of of uh, every piece of the story and, and the whole thing taken together makes a claim on reality. That's what we talked about and how the Holy Spirit then marries the Word and He helps us to live, to learn to live in the real world in which God was actually crucified and raised. That world is yeah. the real world. And so one way to try to get at why does this story move me is what is the claim on reality and where do I stand in that claim and how yeah. does this take the struggle of my Christian living between between the old and new self and give me something, a way to more deeply relate to that Yeah, struggle. I think the phrase that really resonated with me from, from the previous episode was uh, to give you the tools you need to take that work up into your own life. Mm-hmm. To start, inhabit that world yeah, and that truth. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And there's no... Um, what should I say, theology of glories, if we're ever going to, by this focus on narrative, come through the struggle on top. Yeah. And, this doesn't answer all the questions. <laughs> no, it just no. raises more, actually. Christ so. comes to us. Christ comes to us yeah. in the struggle. So I liked the thing you said last time, John. You you were using the word additive a couple of times. Um, can you review that? What did yeah, that mean so to you? it's not, I mean, we we're just kind of talking about it right now, how narrative isn't going to, a narrative understanding of scripture doesn't replace what we already understand as doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's not trying to supersede anything. It's not trying to change the information that's already there that we've been taught. It's not it's merely a 
it's of value because it, it allows us to take that up into our, our lives then. It gives us mm-hmm. a new way to examine things and it brings to light things that we might have otherwise accidentally left in right. the dark. And it, it, it allows us the assumption that, excuse me, it allows us to carry on with the assumption that the way in which things are written are not by accident, that the way that God reveals himself to us in scripture is uh, specific and it has a purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it gives us the tools to examine that in a deeper sense than just this is what happened factually in the Old Testament. And it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into who the figure of God is. Right. Yeah. The reason I think we're being so careful about it and kind of revisiting these expressions is because <clears throat> there's a there's things happening theologically and especially in Old Testament studies, like I mentioned, that we just would disavow. We're just there's something that the term narrative theology brings in the door that you and I would have no time for. You know, yeah. so we're just being careful. This is about calling us back calling not back, calling us toward the scriptures. And the additive thing for me is that it, it it's another set of questions to legitimately ask about the text. So um, if I'm teaching Hebrew, the main thing we're doing is teaching exegesis of the biblical language in the inspired text. And what we're just saying is how narrative ideas, the question, why tell the story this way? Why would the Spirit tell the story this way? What can we safely think about? That that just adds a layer of questions. You know, yeah. We teach the book of Ruth that way. And why, why do you not name this one character in the book? Why is he not even named? What's, what's that all about? So it's just an example of the kinds of questions that can layer on top of yeah. an exegetical approach, which is where real hearts are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think another um, interesting aspect to all that, as I immediately lose my train of thought, um, you know, you were saying... I actually would, did just lose my train. Well, there's a train going it, by my Yeah, there's chair a couple. Over here. <laughs> can, you, can you hear it in the microphone? I, I, I can. And <laughs> see if I'm reading your mind. This is one thing we talked about yeah. before we signed on. Was was uh, So what are the biblical stories that still have some traction outside the church's walls? And what are the stories that people yeah. know? Because it's interesting to think about. Those stories are still making those claims on reality. So mm-hmm. take the nativity, for example. Yeah. Could there be a reason for the war on Christmas? Because even if the nativity story doesn't hit you on the head with the reality of God made flesh, the story can make no sense apart from that mm-hmm. claim that it's making, that this, the real world is a world invaded by God himself mm-hmm. in the form of Jesus. And so, so as far as a Christ-haunted culture that thinks it knows what Christianity is, yeah. But the claims themselves are so scandalous, and you, you know, and it's so especially when we're recording this literally days before Christmas. Yep. What are we like three or four? I can't remember. Mm. I haven't been counting, so that's my fault. But um, there are nativities everywhere. We see them, mm-hmm. you know, every other front lawn almost, which is exciting sometimes. But also, um, I'm curious how how many people in our culture could point to and identify all of the characters in there. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the baby Jesus isn't the obvious one, hopefully. 
Um, there's probably some angels overhead. Those could be identified. Maybe Mary and Joseph are known. The shepherds will probably look like shepherds. And I don't know if that's still something that I'm actually not sure if that resonates outside mm. of the Christian circles, but um, maybe the Magi, Magi, how do you pronounce it? I, I, say I think wise it's both man. the wise men. Yeah, wise men. Yeah. Wise men. I mean, there's still some, yeah, well, some ambiguity about what that even means, even amongst our circles, I believe. So, well, when Christians get confused about were the wise men there in Bethlehem, and of course they weren't. If once you unpack who the wise men represent, then yeah. you have the whole horrendous story of the slaughter of infants. You know they. Go go to Jerusalem to find Jesus, and and that sets off all these things that you now any baby boy two years younger is going to you know be slaughtered. So, and then what that story brings in is just the whole brutal reality of why God, why the world needs to be redeemed. You know. Yeah. So I, I guess I just think that the question of what stories are out there. So the first thing we you and I talked about was boy, there just sure isn't much you know that we know of. Um, that so the, that the outwor- yeah, outward world so, would recognize. I mean, the world sings "Amazing Grace," seems to sing it meaningfully, or at yeah. least they seem to enjoy it. Well, or Psalm twenty-three is still kind of maybe out there because of funerals. But yeah. the more illiterate biblically our culture is, and I'm not the first to observe this, but so the more there's an opportunity to to uh, tell the biblical story even you know Bethlehem tell the yeah. story there's so much there that confronts us tell with the truth you know one of the things about who we are yeah. and our illusions about who God is are all confronted there well one that I'm thinking of now is the passion of the Christ might mm-hmm. be something that more towards the forefront of the of the culture um, I think a lot of people at least know about it I know we talked about that last time in a different context mm-hmm. but yeah, um, what an interesting Cultural that, moment that was. Yeah, I don't think I've watched the whole thing through, hmm. so maybe I should do that before I talk about <laughs> it. But. So, I, do, yeah. do you want to segue from there? We were, yeah, thinking about sort maybe a. That's a yeah. I think that's appropriate. Yeah, we have a kind of a we have kind of a main course coming, but first, it'll, maybe just some random applications of where we see story being um, useful. So go ahead. Yeah. So. Outside of, of Christianity, the it's an interesting question you can pose. What is the purpose of a, a story in our culture today? What is the, is it simply entertainment value? Is there something more that gets packaged along with it? Are there values that you can hide inside these things? I'm asking very pointed questions maybe, mm-hmm. but I think maybe all of the above. They can't like... They're a tool that stories are a tool that can be used in in many different ways. So, and it's a very unselfconscious yeah. tool. If, if yeah. Walter Fisher's right, the story goes to the core of being human. Then we're not intentionally like science isn't intentionally saying let's tell a story. Yeah, let's let's win the culture by telling a story. But that's what science it's, is. It's 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 far more persuasive. I yeah. think in most cases than just the pure raw reason involved exactly it's telling a story that has to do with who i am and mm-hmm. what my value and that's is what, and i mean let's just take for example something like uh atheism that is not palatable for the sole fact that it's a a reasonable conclusion 
that you've arrived at. Mm-hmm. Being an atheist allows you to live in a way that tells you the story you want to believe about yourself, which is I don't want God as a part of my life. And if that's at least in part something that makes it appetizing for someone that mm-hmm. allows them to live in a way that they they wish to choose, that tells them certain things about themselves that they find in gate or they identify with. Mm-hmm. And that it's total, I think we talked about that last. Uh, yeah. It's total Walter Fisher how yeah. stories have embedded in them, quote, good reasons. Yeah. And so it's not to pick on the atheist by any means, but yeah. it's just that there's a, there are things smuggled into the story mm-hmm. and what's smuggled in that yeah. people who become believers out of that world have said, I had good reasons. Yeah. I had reasons for not wanting it to be true. I, as you said, I didn't want any claim on my autonomy. I didn't want to mm-hmm. really bow my knee to anything. Yeah. I didn't want any demands on me that were beyond my power to say no to. But the notion that that too is narrative communication. Exactly. And the smuggling in of core it, assumptions. Yeah. It's not specific. Yeah. Not specifically about atheism, but just that the story and being able to identify with it is what makes it persuasive. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it has that rhetorical yeah. component that's that can't be ignored completely. Right. You have it. You can't ignore you, where you, this story fails either. Yeah. You know where. Well, I don't. Maybe someday we'll talk about apologetics. You know why <laughs> is there something rather than nothing? I mean, the mm-hmm. story does come to these certain places that would tell you and I that they they must be off from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, but. Um, but anyway, uh, so it's helpful to think of science as a story. I think that's really useful. Yeah. I, I think it's helpful to think about, here I go again, the apologetic conversation, which is to think of that too as an episode, to think of that conversation too as something that a person steps back and processes in a very narrative way. So yeah. I remember back to a conversation that maybe a couple of years ago had all kinds of you know, heavy content and rational detail, but that's the part that's going to drain out of the story. And then what remains, I think, for that person is really how they felt, you know, the, the episode of how yeah. they were treated, you yeah. know. I remember um, um, even back to my classes here at MLC, that was a repeated theme that students don't necessarily remember teachers for what they teach specifically, but they will remember how that teacher made them feel. And there's usually a story associated with that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would even argue that all the time there's a specific instance that evokes that memory. I think so. Even if so, the rare time you can actually quote a professor from 20 years ago, mm-hmm. it still comes out as a story of the day he said yeah, that. Yep. Right? So you can't really get away from... Mm-hmm. Or or thinking of a, you know, a favorite professor like uh, Paul Ekman, uh, just a giant of Hebrew studies, the things I remember that he actually said do tie into how I understand his life yeah. and the things I know that he was given to carry, and, mm-hmm. you know. And so what I remember is the man and what it felt like to be in the room and what I remember is what he came to stand for, which was yeah. someone that had a true genuine piety, had a high intellect, and mm-hmm. and for me it was had a Lutheran understanding to to the very core. And so I can't even capture that in things he said. I just, 
that's what he comes to stand for. And so if yeah. the narrative paradigm is true, it it's a way of talking about how I want, well, someone would call it the perf- the performative contradiction is if I'm communicating to you the love of God and you don't, you can't tell that I love you. You you know, you don't sense that. Yeah. That would be a mistake on a lot of levels to give no attention to. Um, what is it like to hear the gospel from me? Yeah. You know? So it's, it's you know, we're afield a little bit, but the applications are everywhere. I think Walter Fisher stands as probably the great communication scholar of our day. Yeah. Um, a Christian man who's in heaven now, recently. Yeah. I heard, um, or I've thought about that in the past, that the way that we remember people is usually like the sum of their stories that we remember about mm-hmm. them or like... What was the phrase that I heard? You die two times. The first time is when you leave your body, and the the second is when the last person on earth says your name, mm-hmm. or something like. I can't remember if it was. A, That's interesting. It's an interesting. Um, it is. But it's I, the, the, the idea the that you first one you, more than the second yeah, by a yeah. long shot. <laughs> but the second isn't irrelevant. Yeah, I think it's yeah. important that the you your story Good. as an as an individual is lives on longer than yeah. than you do. It's People an influence that, that you, lasts. Yep. You're remembered by people, and the things that they remember about you mm-hmm. have a narrative component that can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. So, so we, yeah. you know, we alluded to something last time. I didn't flesh it out, but so how we feel about things, like how we feel about our lives, tending to make sense within the story. Yeah, and that was brought home to me. Um, you may remember this, taking down my mother's life story. Yeah, you know, and she's still yep. with us. Mm-hmm. Um, how old is she now? Uh, 1927, so I'm, 91, I 92. I have a degree in math, but I'm really <laughs> bad at it. So, but, but taking down her life story and watching that that process really occur of telling her story in a coherent way, you know, beginning to end and seeing certain themes and meanings. Um, the big theme for her was divine providence, just seeing the whole course of the the separate narratives all adding up to a narrative in which God is taking care of this woman and, and other mm-hmm. things too, like the, the power or strength that can be hiding in a quiet person. There were particular things too that, but um, yeah, the day I asked her, I put together this document for her piece together from her interviews and all kinds of artifacts and things, you know, photos of Ellis Island and things like that. And yeah. so what does this story mean, mom? And she says, well, she puts her hand on the life story document and says, I would never say this about myself, she said, but I'm proud of the person in the story. And to me, that was endlessly fascinating to think about in terms of the sense-making. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, tentacles to this theory are all over the place. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to not acknowledge it mm-hmm. in wherever it shows up. The, mm-hmm. the narrative component of most, I mean, in, the, in Scripture... Right. Or even in other theories, too. I don't think it's any, uh, I'm sorry, interrupting you. N- no, I didn't really have too much to say. <laughs> I didn't have too much, um, too much else sure, to Sure, I don't think forth, anybody but. could really deny the theory and its influence. I think if I was thinking through who would push back, could they say that they don't want to be distracted by the, the theory? They don't want to maybe put the spotlight there yeah. if it's going to detract from something else that really deserves the focus yeah. and so I'm um, just trying to think how someone might I, th- I can see the interest. I can see how it would be 
taken too far. And I think we mm-hmm. alluded to that previously sure. that, you know, we're not trying to supersede. And I don't think that that's the intention of, um, I don't think that was Fisher's intention at all to, um, at least in a theological mm-hmm. sense, say that this is the utmost of the utmost importance, mm-hmm. but merely that, you know, this is how we engage with the world is through this narrative filter right. that is everywhere. It's ingrained into the way that we process. You know, I'm glad you things. said that because so, we're again trying to put a name on things that we've, I think, both felt intuitively, right? So I, having a chance to write a book, a couple of books that that uh, try to answer the questions skeptics may have about the church and without ever, ever having heard the name Walter Fisher, you know, there was just an impulse for me that whatever the question is, like the church of history has done terrible things. And the impulse was, let's start with a story. Let's start with a story, whatever it is from the gospels that answer the question in some way, you know, like uh, the church has done terrible things. Well, let's just, let's just tell the story of, Jesus saying to Peter, put your sword away when Peter responds with violence in that moment in the garden, you know, in the, at the rest of Jesus. So without knowing, without being able to explain, here's why I want to start every question with a narrative form. Then I've had, you know, and you had too in your grad school work, I've had time since then to, to just say, what's going on here? Why, why, yeah. is that, why is that an influence that we would not want to neglect? Yeah, I think it's a... Uh at least when you're, especially when you're having conversations with people who do not necessarily share the same faith as you, that's the power of using a narrative to help convey the message of, of your faith is, mm-hmm. is very, um, very useful. That alongside with, um, really, really devoting your time to listening to what they have to say or what they, what stories they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Cause oftentimes I've found that the, the things that people have qualms with about uh, religion in general or Christianity is a specific case of that are stories where I would be just as skeptical if I was in their shoes. Mm-hmm. So listening to them and then, and then being able to say the things that those people did, are, I don't, I don't condone those. That's not what it means to be a Christian. I, I, we're on the same page. You're, and oftentimes the thing, yeah, they're the same things that they have qualms with. I would be just as, mm-hmm. just as willing to step in and say, I don't, I don't agree with that, but this is what I do believe. And this mm-hmm. is what I think. And what I hope that you would consider as, as what, what it does mean to be a Christian. And that's, that it's not what we do. It's more about what was done for you and letting everything that happens in your life flow out of that. And then, then you tie it in. That's the that's the grand narrative, right? So, and that's a and what you touched on, John. Too then, it's there's something in this that informs my view of people. That if someone says, "Well, the Church of History has done terrible stuff," or there's no reason to think God exists, that that person does not reduce to that sentence either. Yeah. That there's a whole human being there, and there's mm-hmm. a whole story behind that. And then, yeah. let me begin by just being fascinated by. What do you mean by that? And how have you come to this point of view? Tell me the story that makes mm-hmm. that make sense to you. And yeah. so you're, you're, sh- you're, sh- you're surely right about that. Um, and it goes back to not wanting to have the performative 
contradiction of yeah. treating treating you as yeah. a non person. I want to understand where you're coming yeah. from before I yeah. make assertions about your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. I want to know right. why you think those things. Because the scandal of the cross being what it is, we we may have more in common than you realize in terms of how exactly. one part of me responds to the Christian story. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the yeah. the scandal of God in flesh come to. Mm-hmm. Come to save us and yeah. take us home. So, And that's maybe another thing that I've been trying to do, at least in the last year or two, is to not – It's I'm not trying to bring them to faith per se because that's not my, that's not my work. That's not – that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But if I can – if I can introduce or facilitate them coming in contact with script, Scripture, then – you know, his word will not return to him empty. It will, it will do that work. Mm-hmm. His story is a double-edged sword, and it's very effective at what it does. So, if I can find a way to have that conversation with someone, or even just get them to talk to me about their past experiences and and truly listen to them, and then get to a point where it's like. I understand. I understand where you're coming from, and you can resonate with them in that way. And then mm-hmm. say, "But here's here's what I I know about Christianity, and I can't and I can't show you exactly what it's like. I can't tell you what it's like to have faith. But all I know is I know this. And you just like look at the cross, and then there's the story right in front of you. And so, it's about having enough respect for the scriptures, enough affection and love, and enough trust, really enough trust in the means of grace that we would move the conversation to that ground. We'll yeah. move the conversation into the scriptures, into these wild, challenging, often unknown yeah. stories. Um, yeah. So did you want to talk more? Is that kind of our yeah, main I think course, John? Is, yeah, it's is, pretty much... Go ahead. I think we've kind of drifted into apologetics again, but I don't think... I think that is the, that is the territory that this... Um, our main course for today kind of lies in. So yeah, last time we were using narrative, the narrative paradigm as a way to understand how God presents himself to us in scripture, more like it's like a lens that we're looking through. Whereas it's also useful as a tool or a vehicle to help convey those messages. So outside the walls of the sanctuary, so to speak, how, how does understanding narrative inform our communication out there in the world? Is that kind of what I'm getting? Is Yeah. So, I mean, we can look at this from a very, very broad standpoint, not specifically hearing the construction outside, but also... Um, <laughs> uh, stay focused. Yeah, John, we can... <laughs> stay focused. Here you go. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, you can look at in a very general sense how is how are stories used in culture? What is their purpose? What is their function? And once we start analyzing those questions, then we can maybe work our way back towards you know okay now what does this mean if if we're back in a theological space? So one of the things that I think is really powerful about narrative is that it allows us a place where we can generate discourse about certain things that maybe we weren't talking about before. So maybe it doesn't answer a question or paint the full picture, 
but it at least brings to the table things that are important that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are a number of those that we can, I mean, I could think of outside of Christianity specifically. Um, maybe there are stories about um, racial tension that could bring to light some things that, you know, maybe we just ref- haven't talked about before that we could look at it in a new light. So one that I thought was actually, and I saw this in action actually, was um, there's a superhero movie called Black Panther. And uh, I I watched it. I thought it was, I thought it was a good film. Um, and then a lot of some of my friends on social media were actively discussing the implications of, of what this means, like which character is right in the story, which way was the correct way to go about it. And the story doesn't necessarily condemn either side of those. I mean, it ends in a certain way, but it doesn't say this was the the correct way or the, the right way, or this was a, the wrong way to go about things. Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting to look at the, the kinds of conversations that it, it paved the way for. And so maybe that's an example of how, how story can be used effectively today is it can bring up conversations that we might not have been able to bring up beforehand or maybe not been able to bring up in the same context. So, Do you want to go to C.S. Lewis from that? Bridge? Sure, we can do that. I was thinking that or Dr. House. So, <laughs> I, I was, House can come up too. Well, let's do House first. I, so I took a class um, in my PhD work that may, may again, form the basis of our next episode called Indirect Communication. And, and all I'll say for now, I mean, that really has some interesting precedents in Scripture. Communicating indirectly, trying to, trying to answer the question, how do you communicate to people who are resistant, who think they already know what you're going to say as far as a Christian message and so on? So we'll unpack that maybe in the next episode. But in this course I took, we actually watched an episode of House and there's just no Christian theme there at all in this episode. But it, it was an episode in which the character of House, you know, this, I don't know how you, how would you just describe House? Oh, it, man. So he's... He's brilliant. I, I think he's insanely smart, but very cynical, pessimistic, and incredibly I mean, part of, chronically in pain. Chronically in pain. And then it, it, Abrasive it comes out as abrasiveness and rudeness and... Yeah, very interesting character. Sure. It's been a while since I've watched that show. I thought I, I think I was more interested in that, like in yeah, in yeah. high school, and then I kind of like stopped watching TV yeah. that much. So, so, but still very. We just watched an episode yeah. in which he was uncharacteristically humbled by certain ultimate questions. I think it was about a a priest who had fallen from faith because of his own medical crisis, and um, just that. The urgency of the question that that episode raises about ultimate questions that you can push back if you want for a while, and but they aren't going to go away and no one gets a pass from facing them. It just ends in this really profound sort of urgent question. And you don't see, you didn't see that version of House. That's why it was kind of an expectancy violation that makes you notice that moment. So anyway, so a bunch of students, we just had a, a long, interesting conversation about what what role could even that serve in a Christ-haunted culture that finds a way to avoid those questions? 
as profoundly as it does. Um, so my 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 uh, my mentor of sorts. Here's here's his story. Story of a culture. Let's say it was Egyptian culture, which is profoundly resistant to to the very name of Jesus. At least that portion of the world he was concerned about. And what he does is he gathers a film crew of of Muslims who are converted to Christ, just a bunch of actors, and he puts on the a film version of a woman who is lost in the sex trade, and you know she loses her family, and she gives herself to that life as a way of surviving. And then when she's all kind of used up and spent, she contemplates going home, back to her family. This is a very counter cultural thing because the truth is there's no going home for her she's in real life she's dead to that family and they to her but in the story they tell on film the woman is is received back to her family and to the embrace and the the film is called the prodigal daughter you know it's a very very moving entangling story about a woman brought back home and the the question just becomes what good is that going to do i mean if it doesn't have the information of what it means to be a Christian, the information of who Jesus actually is and what he's done, and what what purpose is that going to serve? And I think what my friend would say is, you know, um, I don't know, it's this radically redemptive story that doesn't have the name Christian slapped upon it. And in some way, maybe like the house story, does it at least prepare, prepare for the witness that may one day come, you know, that in some way the mind has been, or the heart has already longed to hunger for. Yeah. What if that were true, that you could actually come home no matter no matter what you'd ever done? What, what, what if that were true? It's this radical, almost grotesque mm-hmm. painting of, of grace. Of grace. Yeah. I think another person that comes to mind, uh, Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. the same kind of story right. where these you know awful scenarios are are put forth, but then as we were saying in the last episode, you know, suffering and struggle is part of that journey. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah, so, some in a way can almost like pave the way for that. You know, there's a meaning behind that. That doesn't mean nothing. That's not just suffering for suffering's sake. That's, you know, that's a part of a bigger picture. So her, her, her stories are grotesque and, and she's always said most readers will only see the blood and dead bodies and not really understand what she's trying to do. What she's trying to do, I think, just she would say she needs to make evil recognizable. She needs to make evil something that you can recognize because if you don't do that, then what Christian message may come, it just doesn't, it can't make sense. So she has these stories of grotesquery, and in the story, there'll be just some fleeting moment of of grace, something the grandmother says before the the man blows her away, you know. And it's it's you can certainly walk back from that story and not get what she's trying to do. But she was dead serious about I have to make evil something something real before before I can begin to communicate what grace is. Yeah. So it's fascinating to. Someone like that that is so dedicated to that to that small idea that she carries us out in you know story after story Countless, after story yeah. right and uh, I think the author that we also can't ignore in this realm is uh, C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. so maybe of all the stories that I can think of 
if we're talking about how narrative is an effective tool for how to communicate Christian themes or uh, doctrines or even just a, you know, make a connection to the overarching narrative that we find in scripture. I think the lion, the witch in the wardrobe is, is one that, that certainly comes to my mind as the forefront mm-hmm. of that spear. And, and what he's trying to do there, I think John, on the first episode, I caught you using this phrase without explaining it. So I wanted to call you on that. I yeah, think that's used, my bad. Use the phrase, those watchful dragons. So now you got to give that some context. And my context first is, there's a, a moment in C.S. Lewis's career where he f- he's asked to write another book on Christian apologetics. He's got three, right? Miracles and Pain and Mere Christianity, or The Problem of Pain. And asked to write another book, he, he replies to the editor that he thinks he's done doing that. He, he just thinks, well, he's describing his own turn toward art and story as the way yeah. he, he thought he needed to address the culture. Yeah, so I think... The thing he's mostly referring to with that phrase, watchful dragons, is that a large part of culture in his time, and I think especially today you can see it, is that there is a very adamant resistance towards Christianity and even religion in general. So if you're listening to someone you know, having a conversation or something, as soon as there's a whiff of Christianity or something that in that realm, all these defense mechanisms are activated and it, you can, you know, it's like a dragon that gets woken, like woken up and, and all of a sudden you're fighting a battle that you might not have wanted to fight and, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not on the ground that you want to, to be on. And so the thing that you can use to get past that is you can, you kind of sneak it into a story, right? So it has the ability to not activate those adamant defenses, but sure. still get to the content that you want to talk about. Sure. The patterns of resistance, the, like Nathaniel says to Jesus, what could come from, could come from Nazareth, the patterns of resistance to say, what could, could possibly come from the church yeah. or from Christianity? And those, those resistance is so well-practiced that, I think too by sneaking past those watchful dragons, it's how do I get, how do I get the truth even through? Um, and I think he was also he was writing about his own childhood, uh, a really stultifying sense of religious duty and obligation, but he never felt it. It was never real. It was just kind of obligation, and so it was not only reason but also that just numbing religiosity of his childhood that how do you sneak past that any kind of really coming to hear who Jesus is and finally at last responding to him in faith so that was his yeah that was his his uh, also long running commitment that i'm going to i'm going to sneak a message in from now on yeah um, fascinating. i really i really like the the metaphor and i think i mean it, i think it shows up in even in ancient mythology um, it's in Hades. There's like a three headed dog or so. It's been a long time since I've studied this. So sorry, professor Hom. But, um, uh, also just thinking about what defenses we might have towards, uh, some of the messages that are things that they're trying to say that we might shoot down without actually listening to what they mm-hmm. have to say. 
So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think that's a little beside the point. I think the the bigger thing here is that there are a, a lot of art, a lot of renowned art and creativity is dedicated towards this idea of, you know, one of the best ways that we can communicate Christ in our culture today is through narrative. And so many people turn to that. Mm-hmm. Um, all the, the three that we talked to, like almost, I don't know if your, uh, was it your advisor dedicated his life to that kind of idea, but entertainment is powerful. So, and you can leverage that in a very powerful way mm-hmm. and you can achieve a lot with that. So it's, it's yeah. kind of goes to what, you know, if the next episode is about indirect communication. So we talked about this, John, what is it about certain Christian mu- movies that just fall so flat? And I think it's oh. that they're so direct. They, you, you, you watch the trailer and you already know the whole entire story. Yeah. The kid that falls out of the tree and gets his something back, you know. Yeah. And the family and the trailer shows a family celebrating and the trailer says, See God answers prayer and it's also, you know, a heartfelt and well meant and true, but it's just bad it's storytelling. Not gonna, it's not, it, one, it's bad storytelling and two, it's not gonna be appealing or palatable to anyone who doesn't already agree with what the movie's trying to say. It, well, I, even, I don't think I've even watched too many of those. No, to no. Be, even beyond appealing, is it doesn't cause a person to think. So, and what if I this think is it doesn't true, disrupt yeah. the person who thinks they already know what the message is? It doesn't really confront them. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about again, it'll maybe come up next time now. Yeah, <laughs> the Kierkegaard thing. Yeah, you you alluded to in our conversation before one of my favorite stories. So Kierkegaard is always telling parables. And the one is of, uh, and I like it because this is an example of, yeah, confronting people if they think they know what it means. So it's a, it's the schoolhouse, right? And a little girl who is there before the day begins and she's the last one there at school after the day begins, helping her teacher, clapping out whatever erasers and so on. And, and just being a good, good little girl, right? And staying close to the teacher. And one day the class, as Kierkegaard tells his parable, the class is unruly and out of control. And the teacher in exasperation points to the girl and says, why can't you all be like her? You know, and to this, well, some blustering boy in the back row just kind of blurts out, because she's got the advantage, you know. And the teacher has the boy stand up and what are you talking about? What is what is this girl's advantage? And the boy, kind of ashamed, <laughs> red-faced, whispers, she's an orphan. So this is, so Kierkegaard is so brilliant. And that's how it ends, right? (laughs) That's it. That's all there is. She's an orphan. And so (laughs) Kierkegaard is smart enough not to explain his own stories. That one isn't as hard as many of them are that he tells. But the story is, her advantage is her lack. You think you know what it means to be a Christian in Denmark? Her advantage is her lack. Her advantage is what she does not have that binds her to Christ, who is her own, her only Life and Savior. This is me just wanting to kind of extrapolate yeah. on all that's packed into the that. The struggle of it. Yeah, yeah. When I'm weak, I'm strong. I mean, you can talk all day about what that yeah. story means. So so there again, what he's doing is confronting people who, for whom it's all become so casual and so obvious. Mm-hmm. And you know, The I'm, Danish yeah, church at his time. If I'm in the Danish was... church, then I'm Christian. What else is there to know? It's kind, yeah. of, kind of the thing. Yeah. And so he's asking a very similar question to the one that, 
we, with, you know, some fear and trembling are willing to ask is with the illusion of our culture being what it is, with the resistance being what it is, with people thinking they know what it is, it's been debunked a long time ago, why bother with it? Then people not predisposed to hear what, what do you do? You know, what, what do you do to defamiliarize the gospel, to make it something strange in a certain way that they really actually haven't heard before? To, just to go on the street and ask, ask people what they think it is, and would you ever, would you ever get to? It's God on the cross, his, his, his life for mine. Do people even know that? Yeah. Do they know that it's a verdict of not guilty? said before the whole world from the cross and the empty tomb. Do they know that? I don't think no. so necessarily. I'd be worthwhile to go out and find out maybe. Yeah, but, maybe it'd be an interesting uh, social I, experiment. I think, the, I think the questions are valid, even if we would disagree with the conclusions of a Lewis or a Kierkegaard. The question that they're asking, a very urgent question of how do we get a message past the watchful, watchful dragons of just complete, total resistance. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, my other concern on the other side is I, I don't want to be one that's overthinking this either. I yeah. don't want to be one that's yeah, because and again, we're not coming. I I don't have answers for how how to use narrative in an effective way. Mm-hmm. I don't. I know that it's powerful and that it can be used that way. And it, you know, there are certain times in where I might be able to employ that. But any, it, I, there are a lot that. There's a lot that it needs to be unpackaged, and there's a lot that I'm still tangled with that I can't uh, can't escape. I mean, you look in our culture now, and a lot of as as you said before, a lot of the stories about you know that are promoting that Christian message are very poorly done, and the ones that are actually telling us stories from scripture, some of those are pretty awful too. The one that comes to my mind is uh, Noah. I don't even know if that's like a... I don't know if that even counts. Does that even count as a (laughs) Jewish mysticism? It's not trying to tell a biblical story. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. You wish all that genius and art could be marshaled to tell a story well. And there are, I think there are examples out there. Yeah. But... That do, that go a long way to, to try to paint the picture as it is painted in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, the Passion of the Christ, maybe. I don't think I've watched that all the way through again, mm-hmm. but I don't I'll put it on my list again, but maybe it's in there somewhere already. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did, I, I think it's a really, really important question, especially I think um, at least in the Wells, there's a, been a recent, advocacy for engaging contemporary art Mm. and to do that I don't think you can divorce that from narrative Mm -hmm. Um, but how is that done but there there are a lot of things to to examine there are a lot of tools at our disposal Um, tools can be used in the wrong way and it's uh, so it's important to kind of know what game you're playing in Mm -hmm. a sense so Mm-hmm. That's another that's another area where I think narrative the narrative paradigm is an additive force maybe not the be all end all 
but at least in that in that realm, if you're going to be using it as a tool, it better be be done well, mm-hmm. or there's certainly something to lose if you don't do it well. Mm-hmm. So, come to the you know come to the gunfight with a gun, not a knife. <laughs> yeah, you know, it even goes to. Jesus explaining why he why he made the narrative turn, so to speak, why why he gets to a point where he's going to from now on only teach in parables, and he describes it in terms of quoting Isaiah and speaking about the the obstinacy and the resistance of his time. Um, people don't want to hear, and so and a judgment almost an ironic judgment. He says, "Okay, then be be hearing, but never really hear me." Yeah, and I'm going to just tell you stories you won't understand. Which is just so ironic. Why would you tell someone, all right, don't listen anymore? Unless you really are still in another way trying to reach for them. So anyway, he explains his turn toward story, toward parable in terms of a resistant audience. And I think there's some very telling moments, for example, when the disciples hear a story, the story of the sower, and then there's this moment where they take him aside and say, what was that all about? You know, what did that mean? And just the very fact that the the parable awakened that urgency, awakened that they're now asking a good question. Let's him tell them directly, straightforwardly, unambiguously. Yeah. So it's a question in in a world that isn't asking with any urgency. Who is God? Anyway, you know, where do you find him anyway? That uh, maybe there is a place for art and story and things yeah. like that to, to the, try to awaken. The ability to generate discourse mm-hmm. yeah, is I think very, so. very powerful. I yeah. think so. And, and I can all see tied together in that sure, way. Sure, I can see that being being again lost on a person that just doesn't think maybe that's knock on the right door. But um, boy, it's hard to navigate life in this world and to know even how to create that conversation. You know. Yeah, I think we've we've talked about that a number of times. Um, the importance of having some ultimate thing at the the top of our understanding. Mm-hmm. So um, have we talked about David Foster Wallace on here? I don't remember. I don't think. Um, well, well, you know, well, if we <laughs> have, we're going to talk about it again. So um, he has a commencement speech address. I think it's called, this is water. Mm-hmm. Yep. And his, the, the crux of his argument is that if you, whatever you put at the top, Every, everybody worships something in whatever you worship. If it's not something that's some ultimate truth, it will eat you alive. So if you worship beauty, you will always be ugly. You will never be beautiful enough. If you worship money, you will n- never have enough. It will just consume you. Um, yeah, worship then, intelligence, you're yeah. going to feel like a sham. Yeah. And, uh, and then if you tie be- that together with... Um, the hierarchy of loves is who's at the top of our, our list. If, if your family is what you love the most, is this, um, that's Augustine, Augustine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you love your family, the most, uh, well, just misplaced. Um, if you love yourself more than anything else, then, you know, what does that do to your life? But if you have God in that place, in that top spot, Everything else just like falls into place. Mm-hmm. So good things made into ultimate things is the disordering of love, and that's when it's all 
Yeah. You're no longer enjoying that thing that you are now relying on to be somebody. And it's going to, whether it's beauty, like you said, it's going to be taken away bit by bit and it's going to eat you alive. Yeah. And, and of course, that commencement address is set within a story, which is David Foster Wallace being yeah. apparently eaten alive by whatever his personal demons were. I don't know why he took his own life, but it sure makes you think about that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, I think it was known he was struggling with a lot of... Yeah, I think he was depressive, the, uh, yeah, yeah, which is just so... It's sad, but... So very tragic, what a brilliant guy. Yeah. But um, and I, it's a I powerful can, idea. It, yeah, I can think of a number of stories where that is almost the theme, where something good has been taken too far. Mm-hmm. So and, for, for, for me to live is, you know, the Apostle Paul frames it that way. For me to live is what? And we can fill in the blank for me to live as family, for me to live as career and, you know, adulation and everybody loves me. And and we can really, you know, theology of glory, you call it, really reach for those kinds of things to be the glory and the lovability we're all looking for. But Paul says for me to live as Christ, which is just so brilliant. Anything else you put in that spot? And then, and so for me to live as Christ, and then he says, and to die is gain. It only, it only works with Jesus that when he is what I live for, then only then does death come to bring me that which I all along said was my life. Yeah. What I always think about this, just to, so to speak, Lutheranize the concept, which is absolutely valid. I mean, just read mm-hmm. the Psalms and just read the Psalms calling God their ultimate, as a deer pants for water, my, so my soul longs for God whom have I in heaven but you earth has nothing I desire besides you so they are all expressing that God is in Jesus is that which I prize and cannot live without I, I, I think it's important to think in terms of well we never again we never get past the struggle of this the this is what my old man and new man are fighting over is what is that thing you know and that ultimately from a from a means of grace perspective, we need we need Christ to win that territory in my life. I can't, in some act of my will, decisively give it to him. I know that when, by the word of God, he's revealed himself to me as my one thing, then in that moment, a lot of other things fall into place, you know, a lot of Resilience and perspective and the ability to put things behind me that I need to, all that comes. But the fact is, it is it still is God's work in me. That's maybe the missing piece I sometimes... That reminds me of um, Psalm 119. Like, Your word is a lamp. Yeah. You know how the last lamp. verse of that goes? Every single lamp. verse of Psalm 119, how many verses is that? How many hundreds oh, of verses? This is a long, long psalm. And the last verse is this note of, Seek me, Lord find me which is just a stunning way to end that psalm yeah the psalm to the word of god is the light on our feet but then it ends with you you better come find me because i will lose my way if you don't and yeah and it's the same kind of thing that we would take that idea of the the ordering of love and um understand it just it just kind of names something names something i will completely reliant on christ to do for me with his word and incomplete in this life I agree. So how did we get there from narrative, John? I, I think it's all tied together yeah, okay. slowly, but um, the 
man, I've ne- I haven't thought about that in a while or come across mm-hmm. that. Come find me. Mm. It's a very evocative. It implies that I will get impl- that yeah. I will get lost. Yeah. Even the psalmist yeah. in that place where he is under inspiration, having just composed mm-hmm. that heightened poetry to the the power of God's word, even then the closing note is yeah. seek me. It's just chilling, isn't it? I mean, yeah, spine tingling. And I mean, that's the whole, the promise embedded throughout scripture is that he will. Mm-hmm. It's his it's, story. Yeah. He's drawing us into his story, yeah. not the other way around. Mm-hmm. It is he that is the agent um, in every way. So, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, another thing we we wanted to touch on a little, at least in part, is um, how that story is kind of evoked in in who we are in in our personalities. Mm-hmm. So um, one thing I've I heard about uh, in the last year here, and I th- haven't really explored it all the way, but it has been very intriguing to me. Is there's a a personality theory called um, the Enneagram, which was recently brought to my attention um, through a podcast, actually. I was mm-hmm. one of the random ones that I happened to listen to, and mm-hmm. the, the guy was, um, he wrote like a primer book on, on what this personality theory was. Um, but the thing that I think was really entangling for me is that it, it proposes that there are a number of narratives which are sort of like aspects of God. So you have like the perfection of God, the love of God, the accomplishments of God, the uniqueness of God, the mm-hmm. knowledge of God, the loyalty of God, the power of God, and the the peace that God brings to us. Those are all narratives that help like, that he shows to us in scripture, but that those are also embedded into some of the ways that are, we, we see ourselves as personalities. So the way that people live in the world is oftentimes tied to one of these narratives specifically, not that they're solely tied to that one, but that that one is like a dominant force in their life. And that I thought was really powerful. Just that, you know, being made in God's image, um, this is a way in which that, it, that, it, that can be viewed. Hmm. So. Uh, yeah. When, sure. When the image of God is restored, then I th- think it's valid to say that there are aspects of his character that are never going to be fully. Yeah displayed in any one believer's life, but in the whole mosaic. Yeah. That it, it's just, it, it's interesting. Here's kind of how I've kind of understood that Enneagram. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously with, again, the fear and trembling of, I don't know where this theory leads or where it comes from necessarily or what people do with it that I would not want done with it. I, but just, just the simple idea that, well, Ian Cron, I heard him too, probably the same co- yeah. podcast talking yeah. about when you're, you're a child and you're maybe by, I think he is a psychoanalyst that thinks by about four years old, you're pretty much formed. What he means by that is that a story has become dominant to you by that time in life. And the notion is that as you get older in life, that story, whatever it was, and this is now the fallenness of humanity, this is a story that's not really actually helping you. Mm-hmm. 
the story, like the I'm not enough story, I mean complete story, you know. Um, that a person grows up in life and that story no longer helps you survive like it maybe did when you were three or four. Now it becomes a story that in one way or another is really dominating. and It's a wound. Yeah, it's a wound and you can't talk yourself out of it. You can't say, this isn't my story anymore. I mean, the, his idea is that by understanding that story, which whatever it is, it may have some really profound internal connection to Christ. Like the, if my story is the I'm not enough story, I've always been telling myself this or experiencing life through that filter, then all the more is the sufficiency of Christ going to become potentially a, a major healing theme for me. Yeah. And so it's like, this is your story. Maybe you can't get rid of it anymore, but, but it doesn't have to master or control your whole destiny because yeah. it can instead be a very, 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 very personal inward way of, of um, making sense of all that Christian truth holds for you. Yeah. And so just going that far, I just thought, what can I say? It resonates. It, it, yeah. it resonates. I'm cautious about what that whole theory might mean to other people. I don't even happen to know what that yeah. would be. I wouldn't want to uh, take anything away from, you know, we're not just wounded. Yeah. It's not just poor, yeah. poor It's not us. just weakness that you yeah, have. Your not, type not, is also um, probably your greatest strength, too. Yeah. What so. I was going to say is it's not, it's not just, oh, poor me, I'm hurt and struggling. Yeah. That there's something far more difficult, difficult yeah. to confront to confront in myself than yeah. just that, which is the radical evil of my sinful nature. And I would, you know, so I'm just only speculating, is there anything that, th that makes that theory a little bit too therapeutic as a yeah. Christian view and not enough, just the, let's call a thing what it is. Our sinful flesh is what yeah. it is. And God is who he is, who saved mm -hmm. us without any merit on our part. I, I'm always, yeah. I'm always thinking let's not mm -hmm. be taken in by an idea, but if we just, for me, just kind of leave it at that elementary. Yeah. Do I have a story that... That maybe I haven't, that's been playing on repeat exactly. for a large part of my life. Exactly. And maybe I'm not aware of what that story is. Right. So another one that comes to my mind is the, I can't be loved for who I am. Hmm. So... I think the, the exact story that Ian Cron brought forth was um, Agassi, the tennis player, Andre. Oh, yeah, go ahead, it? tell that. I think, so, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, so he says in his memoirs that he never loved the game of tennis um, and that he did it because his father wanted him to, essentially. He's like, my, my father missed understood or conflated his love of me with the love of the game of tennis. And so he went through a lot of his life doing that, performing that, putting on that facade because he wanted his father to love him. Something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So I probably mistold that in a little bit, but it, the, the essential idea is that he became something other than what he was before he put on that he performed that role as an act of love so i mean that's a that's a pretty significant wound to go through life yeah. with that as like the dominant thing that's that's going on behind the scenes 
And what did you call that? You were talking to me before. That's a good wound? Yeah. Yeah. He says, what a great wound. What a good wound. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> yeah. What does he mean by Thanks. that? Thanks. It hurts. Um, but What does he mean by that? Well, we, I think he said we all carry a wound. We all go, I mean, we've talked about how struggle is a crucial component, is a necessary component of our faith. You can't get to Easter without going through Good Friday. Mm-hmm. There's there's always going to be that, that part of it. Maybe not to dwell on that, but at least acknowledge it. At least bring that forward. We have all have some wound that we carry through, right. and maybe we're not aware of it. And that's where I think, you know, Maybe some of the usefulness of that theory is, sure. is helping reveal things that we might have left un, unexamined. And how, so. boy, I don't know how Andre Agassi's story unfolds, but how, how might that be useful to God in the spirit? Yeah. By his word, here's a person who the love of a father was all performance and it was never love for you. How, how might one day some... Christians show up and tell a much better story than that. Yeah. About, a, about you know, a prodigal son kind of story. Yeah. The waiting father who gazes at the horizon waiting for his son to figure out that he is everything. So, yeah, I, yeah. as far as it goes, I, I, I Yeah, like as that. far as, as personality theories are, I think it's it at least intriguing. Right. And the narrative components that are um, imbued inside it are at least relevant to our conversation here, especially when we're talking about how this relates to scripture, how this relates to the way we are made. So, so our, our, our two or three listeners can kind of decide now, do I want to keep listening (laughs) to this? Because, um, you remember um, about a few, a little bit ago when we were concerned we wouldn't have enough content for this episode. (laughs) Oh, you don't think we're kind of done and here? Clo- here no, here I'm, ready, I'm ready to keep going. I, I, wherever it goes. What I was going to say was, uh, for our listeners to get comfortable with the approach, I, how often do I say in, in my communication class, this theory can be wrong, but boy, it sure does raise some good questions. So even if it takes you to negating the theory in the end, boy, did it did it raise a good question. Yeah. You know, what is the place of story in my very... Identity. I can talk about my identity in terms of being a child of God, and I can, you know, when God calls me his child, he changes everything in terms of how he'd like me to live in this world. This just raises the question, could I also think of my struggle for identity in terms of story? And what story best supplants whatever my flawed story is? Yeah. What story best supplants that and says, no, 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 this is who you are. This is who you are, and it's a story. You know, in yeah. my baptism, connecting me to the very death, burial, and rising of Jesus. So, yeah, if it takes me there, then I think there's some value. The there. questions are useful. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. I I did some more exploring after hearing that pie. I read the book that that he wrote, and I, it has been pretty enlightening. Mm. Not, I wouldn't say it's like mind blowing, life changing, but it's also, mm-hmm. it's it's a very valuable tool to look at. You know, oh. And you know, this this person that's I can see that narrative going through and playing over and over and over in their life and mm-hmm. the mistakes that they're making or the good things that they're doing too. It's not all about, you know, this is where you're wounded. It's also, you know, the mechanisms that we 
he would argue we we adopt as children to deal with the the world those aren't irrelevant when we're older they're just not the only way that we can approach things so 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 like the ability to adopt a performative approach to the world is very useful in accomplishing tasks and getting things done so that's not a skill that's you know you leave alongside a wound that you're trying to heal Mm -hmm. it's a it's a, a huge strength. So yeah, yeah. So if if uh, our take on communication is we we want to bring a robust understanding of the human condition together with a robust understanding of Christ in this moment by His Word, then all that could do that that lens is maybe add to the arsenal. Yeah. How do I diagnose a person? trying to help them sort through, you know, the dominant theme or story of their own life. I think that could be yeah. useful. It's In the same way that, you know, a narrative paradigm is useful for mm-hmm. examining scripture and finding mm-hmm. more things that you would have otherwise. Yeah. This, I, I think they're very much similar in terms of, of value. I would, agree, I would argue that the narrative paradigm is a little bit more brings a little bit more to the table Mm -hmm. Um, but that might be a a personal bias I think that's I mean that's one of the way my life is is headed I think that's a direction that I want to go in in a similar on a similar path is like Mm -hmm. if I can use if I do anything if if it can be said that I was able to to lead someone towards scripture or towards the cross then, you know, that's a, that's a success for me. Like that's, Mm. that's, that's my goal. So to do that for as many people as possible, how do I, how can I do that? And I think that in our culture, stories are the way. Well, God bless you on that. I mean, uh, thank you. We're after a fresh hearing of an old, old gospel. Yeah. Um, Did I tell you, John, I actually saw, saw Walter Fisher at a... You did. Com- yeah, okay, I told you already. It was one of those great ironies of being yeah. a communication person is here was a session, sort of a fest shrift session, sort of a yeah. honoring Walter Fisher's career. And he's an old, old guy. And oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember you The presentations were so terribly awful. It was PowerPoint slides filled with information. And it's like the, the, the great irony of calm people who can't communicate who just didn't get the point apparently of Walter Fisher. It's been gonna, my experience. I think <laughs> there's an awful lot conferences. of conferences. Let's use the biggest words we can. Here's a really sophisticated well to tell the story of someone's life without actually telling a story. Yeah, exactly. So he was a gentleman of course. And i actually didn't realize he died until I, my, my nephew cited him and put the date 2018 as a really date of departure. So I hadn't realized. That was fresh news for me today too. Are, are you getting full here, John? Or? Yeah, I think, um, I think so. Okay. I think so. So I think we, at the end of each topic, we'll, we'll kind of segue towards like a dessert, which is more of a, whatever little tiny topic is we choose to indulge in for okay. today. So it might not be, I'm, I'm finding it's actually difficult to think of things that are like smaller, little anecdotal, um, yeah. bite, bite-sized that pieces that aren't 
connected. Yeah, things that yeah. aren't connected directly to what we were just talking about. And I think right. the little dessert I was going to bring to the table is pretty much directly connected to it. Um, there's, I watched a movie yesterday. Oh, tell me. That's it. That's all I have. No, oh. <laughs> uh, it's called the. It's called the Post. I think it's a Spielberg film. It's about the release of the Pentagon Papers by the Washington Post. And um, I watched it and I thought it was entertaining. That's that's about as far into it as I went. Um, there's some interesting, uh, I think, valuable contributions in terms of uh, the role of gender in society that you could take away from that. Also, you know, whistleblowing is a interesting topic even currently. I mean, Edward Snowden a few de- a few years ago. Um, government secrets. Very, but it kept my attention. It held. Uh, I paid attention to it the whole time. And I think that's if I could use anything as a litmus test for how good a piece of art is. If it can do that, doing a pretty good job so far. So, mm-hmm. that's about all I have for <laughs> for that one. Well, mine. Okay, so. Instead of watching movies, I've been watching my Packers go down in flames. Oh. We would, you know, do the math every weekend. What are their chances? And then all in one hour and a Is half. They, do they still have here. like no. some random chance? Or no, something? no, they don't. Okay. They're, they're done. The it was like won, lightning then. has to strike the goalpost like three times, right. and the Jaguars have to like win twice in one game or something. Oh, yeah. Like okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but it's all over. But okay. I was remembering a a friend of mine in his qualifying exams for his PhD. The question was something like. You know, most questions are a page long. Just a page yeah. long is the question itself, and you're oh, supposed to man. write in this. But his question was something like NFL period stories period go. And it was all he was supposed to write about how a narrative paradigm kind of view would unpack what happens in the NFL. And I just thought it was, was that so a, like a previous interest that was known. No, to not him? at all. No, so he had no clue about no, none whatsoever. Do you get to like? do some research before this question? But or? I think that was a softball question, though. Oh, when you, when you okay. step and think about it, I mean, yeah. every play is a story, every game is a story with its ups and downs, and the NFL is a story going back to the Packer-Bears rivalry, and, and the, then, you know, the, the, the different types bowl, of stories you can The stories tell. of the characters and, and the players and their backstories. And, um, and, and what I was thinking is if you take story away from that, what do you have left? Take story out of the NFL broadcast, what's left? You know, and and so then you got to stop and think. Well, what is the, what are the good reasons they're trying to provide? Whether it's Colin Kaepernick's story, is yeah. the backstory, and so it's just a way to talk about. I think the other well, one. Well, we live in a saturation of narrative nowadays, especially con- in media. Concussions being oh, a yeah. big problem in retired NFL well, that's players. That's a movie we can make yeah, a movie ex- about yeah, how made. that all unfolds. Did they do that? I they actually they, did. They did. I forget what that one's called. Was it Will Smith was in that? Okay. One of my favorites. So, what's the what's the movie called? Do you remember? Concussion. Maybe. Oh. <laughs> Not sure. Mind blowing. But, um, but so I. That, know, I remember Draft Day was an interesting one. Oh, I I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I watched that. Just the drama the behind recently. the scenes. That. Yeah. Oh, who's the actor in that? I forget. Um, Don't remember. Yeah. Dead Dead Air Time. There. He's a famous guy. He's in the movie. Um, really? You should be yeah. a film critic, John. 
But so, I would think I would bring a, an interesting take to that. So some, someday where this is going to... I thought about doing parody <laughs> movie critiques. Where you can't where think was, of the actor's you know, name. Or I can't think of, like, I just can't remember what happened in the film. But it, So it must oh, have been wait, okay. Dances with Wolves guys. Dances with Wolves guy. Or Kevin Costner. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. That's the one. Yeah. Kevin Costner. I just remember he has that sticky note in his hand and he knew from the beginning of the day. Boy, the art uh, of the deal, huh? Yeah. That's a fascinating. Great stuff. Someday we're just going to segue into, um, someday we'll talk about what Christian worship communicates because I think that same, or even more, that same saturation of stories is what you would find in the yeah. in the common service. and Exactly. The, Readings in the hymns that are miniature stories that unfold and and like if you take story out of worship, what is what left? What was left? Yeah, that's a great question. And to to change my view would be to change the worship style without really understanding the story that you were interfering with. I I've kind of got a very traditional view of what worship can be. Yeah. But we don't, our listeners don't have to agree with me, nor nor do you. <laughs> but <laughs> but just that that basic point of here is more communication that fits. Yeah, how we are hardwired as human beings. Yeah, if, if Walter Fisher is right, and I'm pretty sure he is. So. Yeah, it's almost like an injustice to not at least understand the the stories that are involved mm-hmm. before and going going yeah, in yeah. And, and changing things. It's it's even that, not that changing things is wrong, but that there is a very a lot to unpack. And this there's freedom a lot to, to yeah. serve the gospel in whatever forms serve best. But I would like you to know. Yeah. You know, the, the moment of the Lord's Supper, why we sing holy, holy, holy at that moment when yeah. it's hearkening back to Isaiah's vision of God. And that's so brilliant, that crashing of worlds that happens there. Or how long have we been saying, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, since the fifth century. So please at least yeah. know that that's the kind of glowing ember of the ancient yeah. church before you yeah. find it dull or something like that. Yeah. So that's a whole bias think, coming through. And but, I think a lot of times we're just... I mean, we hear this every Sunday, at least, especially if we're in a church that uses that litur- a liturgy mm-hmm. like that frequently. So it almost becomes numbing, uh, yeah, in the sense I, that that I mean, even s- stories from Scripture can can have that effect. But then finding a new lens to look at it, even if it's just from a historical standpoint, like, you know, what's the story about how this came to be, mm-hmm. the way that it is. You can get lost it, in the formalism, but I would just argue yeah. you don't need to. If it's if you don't even know what it means, then how could you do anything but yeah. do it legalistically and shallowly? But yeah. But so I don't think what you do about that possibility of formality is just dispense with it all. Yeah. I think I think you unpack it. I think you unpack it, and you yeah. can do that inside the service itself too. Mm-hmm. I think. Anyway, to a degree. Yeah. So. I don't know. Well, I'm I'm curious to maybe we'll, we'll probably talk about that at least in part in the future. Maybe, but maybe. I think I see a waiter going by. Should, I, should I get his attention? Yeah, is check, it time for check, the check? Please. Do you got the check? Uh, I thought it was your turn. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hear you next time. <laughs>